some people think it's like supposed to be about a bad kid. I that was I was surprised by that because I just wanted to make a book about a real kid having real problems. And I think that it is so important for kids to read books where they're seeing real kids kind of navigate things that, you know, that life might throw at them. Um, Because I think you learn, you know, from these experiences. And I wanted the books to be super relatable. So I wanted Dory to be relatable. I don't want Dory to be like, yeah, we, we laugh at her. And sometimes she goes too far. But I wanted her play to still be like what's kind of considered within like the healthy boundaries of play. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. I am so thrilled to introduce today's guest because she is the author of one of my favorite chapter book series. It is Abby Hanlon. Abby is the author and illustrator of Dory Phantasmagory, which is a series of chapter books for five to nine-year-olds. The first book in the series was named a Best Book of the Year by Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and Parents Magazine. It won a Golden Kite Honor for Fiction and is an American Library Association notable book. The sequel, Dory and the Real True Friend, won a 2015 Sybil Award, and the books have been translated into 22 languages and are Junior Library Guild selections. Abby has a bachelor's from Barnard College and a master's degree in childhood education from the City College of New York. Abby has taught creative writing and first grade in the New York City public school system. Her debut picture book, Ralph Tells a Story, which came out in 2012, is widely used by elementary school teachers. Abby recently illustrated the picture book, Chester Van Chime, Who Forgot How to Rhyme, written by Avery Monson and came out in 2022. And Chester Van Chime is a 2023 Bank Street College Best Books pick and a Good Housekeeping Best Kids Books of 2022 selection. Abby lives in Brooklyn with her husband, her 16-year-old twins, and her scruffy dog, Caroline. Before I share our conversation, I'm going to read the synopsis for the sixth book in the Dory Phantasmagory series, which is Dory Phantasmagory can't live without you. The wildly popular, ever hilarious Dory Phantasmagory series is back for a sixth adventure with Dory turning separation anxiety into a ghostly, goofy escapade. When Dory loses track of her mom in the hardware store, it leads to a touch of separation anxiety. Dory suspects her mom will soon sail off on a ship across the world to eat cake and play kickball and never return. These are big feelings, and Dory knows what to do. She throws a sheet over her head and haunts her family everywhere they go so they can't leave her much to the annoyance of her brother and sister. Then, Dory's longtime nemesis, Mrs. Gobblegracker, reappears wearing a wedding dress, and Dory's mom makes an announcement that leaves not just Dory reeling, but her siblings too. Maybe a haunting is exactly what's needed to get this family back to normal. 
In her sixth book, Dory delivers hoots and oopsies on every page, entangling her friends, real and imaginary, in fabulous plots that sometimes take even Dory herself by delightful surprise. Hi, Bianca. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm so psyched to be here with you. Oh my gosh, it's an absolute honor. Obviously, I'm a book lover through and through. And sometimes there are just books that really, really feel special to me because they're the ones that I snuggled in bed with my kids reading. And my middle kiddo uh, was a huge Dory Phantasmagory uh, reader, and we would just giggle together all the time. And so I have a real soft spot for Dory. Oh, uh, yay. I want to ask our typical questions that I love to get to the bottom of on the Growing Readers podcast first before we dive into Dory. Okay. Um, just in general, I mean, I know that you have an educator's background in, in early education. And yeah. so I'm just curious, what is it in your core that drives you to write for kids? Well, I think it changed over time, but I think what drove me um, at first was that I just wanted to make a chapter book ki that little kids could read who were not particularly advanced readers. And I just had trouble kind of finding those books when I was looking for them for my kids when they were in kindergarten. So that's what kind of drove me at first, which I was like, I'm going to make a book that is a chapter book and that kids can have this like satisfaction of, of having read a whole chapter book, but also, you know, give them tons of support. So there's like probably 150 illustrations in each book and that I always make sure that the text and the illustration correspond. So it's like you're, you know, always trying to think through the eyes of a child. So like if the illustration is after the necessary text, it's not helping them. So like I always kind of rewrite to make sure that those two things go together. And I'm always, you know, clarity is the most important thing. Um, if something is a tiny bit confusing, then it needs to be rewritten. And I think humor is also like from, you know, my background as a teacher, that's, I noticed like it's the kids want funny books. And when you can get kids laughing, I think you can get them reading. So humor has been a big driving force. I, I guess like I go from action to action. I don't like have kids like waiting around in description and like not sure like, like, where are we? Who's talking? Like, I just try to make everything super clear and just having funny relatable everyday scenarios. And then, so I guess the second part is that that was kind of my driving force. But now um, that I've worked on the sixth book that just came out last week, I'm thinking more as an author about creating realistic problems in my books for kids that I can kind of like tap into that those like universal fears and anxieties of, of kids. You know, my books, they all have like a real problem and, and an imaginary problem, but I take the real problem very seriously and think a lot about it. So in the, you know, current book, she's, she has a lot of separation anxiety. And I think that um, is something that a lot of kids go through. But something really fun about you is that I don't think that you studied art and you just taught yourself to, to draw. Is that right? Yeah, that is that is right. And I used to say I taught myself how to draw, but then I realized how that is not correct because I'm still I still don't feel that I know how to draw. 
Um, so I'm still drawing, I guess I should say, but it, I don't feel like that the learning part is over. And maybe, maybe, you know, a lot of uh, illustrators feel that way. Yeah, I started off as a first grade teacher and I really didn't draw. That wasn't like who I was at all. I hadn't drawn since I was a child. When I was a teacher, you know, we would do, the kids would write stories in the class and like I would model, this, like I would write my own story. And, you know, they were supposed to go off and make these little books using words and pictures. And so when I modeled my own story, I would kind of like try to draw like a little thing with stick figures. And I think like, you know, my, I was so excited by their stories and then we'd like publish them and have like a little publishing party. I loved that part of teaching so much. I mean, it was just so cool to see kids who are like kind of like forming um, words for the first time and, um, you know, early first grade and to, to be able to communicate something with this whole new ability, you know? So yeah, I started to think like, wait, I should do this too. Like, this is so much fun. So I, I've been, I've been teaching myself how to draw ever since I got a book for kids. It's called Make a World by Ed Emberley. I use that book to learn how to draw stick figures. And I still don't know how to draw like you know, realistically, I, I took a life drawing class a couple years ago thinking that, you know, if I, if I learned how to draw like anatomically correct, like it might change my drawings and make them better. But, um, I just went straight back to what, what I'm doing. And I was the worst in the class and I was so embarrassed. And all these young people were, were, were like, wait, are you an illustrator? And I didn't want anybody to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I feel like that's, and obviously I'm not, I'm not a kid, so I'm, I'm projecting here, but I imagine that what kids really relate to in your artwork is that level of rawness that you bring, right? It, they, they can connect with it because it's, it's, you know, there's something similar about maybe the way that they draw. Yeah. I don't know if it was just one illustration in, in particular, when I was just reading this latest book, there was a face and the art reminded me a lot of yeah the Charlie and Lola series. Did you ever oh, read? I love I love them. Lauren Child. Like, yeah. yeah. Wait, I'm so that's such a nice compliment. Um, Lauren Child did this illustrated version of Pippi Longstocking. Uh, yep. Yep. And it was like, I, I don't know, I love that that version, but I just, the it was the shape of the face. I think there was some little freckles on the cheeks and I don't know. <laughs> I adore Lauren Child. So that is really cool. That, yeah, that's awesome. I haven't seen her books in a while because like I just, I read them with my kids when they were little and I love that the TV show is so cute too. All right. Well, so the other question I love to ask is to be a writer, they say you need to be a reader first. So was there a pivotal moment in which you considered yourself a reader. If yeah. you don't even agree with that statement, you oh. can say that too. Oh, well, that's so interesting about that statement. It's so interesting because like my son and I both kind of have a similar energy of just being extremely hyper. And so we both spend more time writing than we do reading probably. But I do think that the reading is still really important. But when I am writing something actively, I actually try not to read so much, like, because I just need quiet in my head, because like, you just don't know, like the ideas sort of like, just come to you sometimes when you're not thinking. And I just don't want to be clouded by like kind of other people's imaginary worlds. But yeah, I think I became a, I think I was always a reader. Um, I sort of used books um, as a child to extend 
and my play. So I th- the books that I loved the most were um, Richard Scarry's books. And I was very inspired by those, his world. And I would, you know, turn my bedroom floor into one of those little towns using like every block and object I could find in my house. And then kind of in a similar vein uh, with Shel Silverstein's books of poems, um, I would also use those to play and I would act them out with my friends. And then I loved, I loved Beverly Cleary. I I also loved um, Charles Schultz's Peanuts. And those are so fun too to have. Like I, I got a bunch of them for my kids. He was so prolific. It's insane. And, you know, there's like 26 volumes or something from like 1950 to, I don't know, up, up to the 90s, I think. And so I loved reading those. Have you ever been to the Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California? You know, I was in Santa Rosa three nights ago um, for my book tour, and I did not get to go um, because it was just, you just, you're at the hotel for nine hours, you wake up and you go. So yeah, I was pretty bummed about that. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I used to live in California, so we went a couple times. I loved that Lucy's uh, psychiatrist boxes out the front so you can pose and have a picture and (laughs) pretend to pay your five cents for your piece of advice. (laughs) Love it. All right. Well, now you are six books into the Dory Phantasmagory series, but I would love to return to the beginning. So you've kind of spoken a little bit about where the idea came from in the sense that you wanted to fill the gap in books that you were trying to find for your own kids. But just in terms of Dory specifically, like where did the idea for this particular character come from? I think Dory, like from the beginning, came from my feelings as a child. Um, well, I was just the youngest of three kids and my brother and sister kind of um, gravitated towards each other. And I was kind of like, the oddball. And my family, I think it, what started was um, my family actually, like when they're mad at me, they still like their go-to insult is that I'm being immature. And, you know, they still call me a baby, even though, you know, I have a job, a pretty good job. And I have a husband and two kids and I own a house, but I'm still a baby. And so that's kind of what clicked, um, which is that I thought it would be like a fun, it's sort of just like a vicious cycle, you know, where it's like, you can't shed this identity. And that, you know, with Dory, um, her siblings, it's like, you know, the more they call her a baby, the more she kind of like retreats into her own world. And the more she talks to herself, the more babyish she seems. Um, So I didn't really take or, you know, use much of what actually happened from my own childhood. It's really just that like core feeling. And then I sort of took that and mixed it with those feelings and mixed it with like so many details from my kids' childhood, you know, from them, their friends, our neighbors, their cousins, just like all the kids that I've had, you know, the pleasure of being around the last, you know, 16 years, I guess. I've just put a lot of the the funny things, like when something makes me laugh, I write it down, you know, I just put a lot of those things in the book. Well, Dory for me is such a great character, but Dory alone needs the supporting characters and the supporting characters for me are just as well developed. Dory's by far the star of the show, but you know, we've got Mrs. Gobblegracker and, you know, her mom and her dad and her siblings and the the friends at school and, you know, so 
I would love for you to just take a little moment. I, I definitely want you to talk about Mrs. Gobblegracker, but maybe like pick two or three characters to just kind of uh, share a little bit about them and what they bring to the stories. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so we'll we can start with Mrs. Gobblegracker. So when I was um creating this book, I actually thought of using some of the archetypes from fairy tales because I thought that it would be fun. I I knew that my kids at the time were really into reading Grimm's fairy tales, and I thought you know it'd be fun to make a book that had like a little bit of like a scarier, darker element. Um, Mrs. Gobblegracker just started off as like a little doodle in my sketchbook, and then I kind of realized that she'd make like such a great villain. And I, I was sort of inspired, I guess, by, I think I had just read my kids, um, Matilda and I got like, I was just so over the top having fun with reading Miss Trunchbull's um, lines. My daughter was at the same time, like obsessed with um, Miss Hannigan from the movie Annie. She was scared of Miss Hannigan, but also like could not stop talking about her. So I think like those couple influences definitely went into Mrs. Gobblegracker. And then um, I, I still sort of can't believe that, that they let me write a book about a woman who's threatening to take the child, the child away. It, um, <laughs> I'm so glad that it was 10 years ago. Um, I guess now, because I'm not sure if they'd say like, oh, that's too scary. So yeah, that's where Mrs. Gobblegracker comes from. And then Mr. Nuggie is kind of like the helper archetype. You know, he's not actually super helpful. He makes lots of mistakes. I just thought, you know, Dory, you know, she, her, her siblings are often her enemies. And then she has Mrs. Gobblegracker to contend with. So she needed somebody who was like on her side totally. And so Mr. Nuggie, you know, he makes mistakes, but he's always polite. And I think he always like retains his dignity. I guess I'll talk about Mary, who is also kind of an archetype of like the trickster character. Um, she's sort of like Dory's alter ego. Um, you know, at first Dory kind of blames certain mishaps on her. Her her purpose is to be goofy and also to, in contrast to Dory's siblings, to kind of worship Dory. I don't know if it's because I led with Mrs. Gobblegracker there, but I noticed that the characters you chose to talk about are all the imaginary yeah. characters. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, like, are, are they are they your favorite to write? Um, no, I, they're hard. Like Miss the new the new Dory book, like I didn't have Mary in the whole book until like the very end where I was like, oh no, this like kids love Mary. I had to get Mary in. And so no, I think she's hard. I think I'm having an easier time now with like the realistic here with the family, like the family dynamics. The parents are just, you know, it's funny because like the parents to me, I'm just I'm just trying to make them realistic. And also, you know, I was trying to make Dory realistic. Some people think it's like supposed to be about a bad kid. I that was I was surprised by that because I just wanted to make a book about a real kid having real problems. And I think that it is so important for kids to read books that 
where they're seeing real kids kind of navigate things that, you know, that they, that life might throw at them. Um, because I think you learn, you know, from these experiences. And so, um, yeah, the realistic stuff The I wanted the books to be super relatable. So I wanted Dory to be relatable. I don't want Dory to be like, yeah, we, we laugh at her, you know, and sometimes she goes too far, but I wanted her play to still be like what's kind of considered within like the healthy boundaries of play. When you said that some parents or I guess adult readers put the stigma on her that she's the she's a bad, a bad kid. I just think having a character like Dory that is, like you said, she pushes the boundaries a little bit, but I I think that's what's so wonderful about her for for kids to be able to read that and recognize that there's a boundary being pushed and that maybe if they encounter another kiddo that's pushing a boundary around them that they can see that maybe that kid has is lost in their imagination in that moment but that that kid isn't a bad kid that kid is just figuring figuring out the world and I feel like having a character like Dory allows the child reader to see that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And to, to sympathize with her. And I think just ha- having somebody to relate to, I just think that when you relate to a character, like it just feels good. Like you just feel seen. And um, sometimes you remember when you're faced with a character that's relatable, sometimes it makes you remember something about your life that you forgot. Yeah. And that I love that when that happens. And I think and I hear that a lot with the with the Dory books is that parents or kid or like older siblings will say, like, I forgot that that's like what so and so used to do exactly. And I think that's really nice when you can kind of uncover those those sort of like family memories. Well, we touched on the illustrations. And so you write and you illustrate. I'm curious if you think that when when readers pick up a Dory book, what do you think is the first impression that sticks with them? Do you think it's an illustration or do you think it's more of a feeling from just the overall book or or do you think it's like specific moments, like specific sentences? What do you think the majority of kids tend to pick up on first? A feeling, an illustration or a, a sentence? Like what seems to be most meaningful to readers? I think Kids definitely have fun with the illustrations because they're so expressive. And like we were talking about before, they're they're so childlike. Um, so I think that they're just so accessible. But I don't know if I could say what one thing. I guess there's things that kids love that they just tell me about, you know, like little things that happen in the book, like when Mr. Nuggie turns into a chicken or Dory, you know, refuses to wear her bungee coat or Dory shoots Mrs. Gobblegracker in the butt with a sleeping dart. Like these are some some of the things that kids come back, you know, to over and over again, tell me that they love. So I think it's mostly like the the silly, like goofy parts of the book. Yeah. Right. And and I think also what I was hearing, too, was like the relatable moments where, you know, oh, maybe I've struggled with wanting to put my coat on before. Or... Yep. So yep. I, I, I wrote down a couple of funny moments and I literally wrote funny moments that were relatable for me. Oh, so, that's awesome. Okay. So um, Mozart is a, is a theme throughout this latest book. Yep. And when Dory overhears that Mozart is dead, she... <laughs> She's totally shocked and stunned. And I laughed so hard at that because 
I literally had that exact moment recently with my son. He's eight. And somebody talked about that Michael Jackson is dead. And he stopped and he said, what? Michael Jackson is dead? (laughs) So I just like, what inspired that moment for you in, in the book? Did, did you have a moment that was, it was based on reality? Um, yes, it was a hundred percent. My kids, they were younger than Dory. So they were like, I think maybe three turning four. They had just come from their first concert and, you know, they met the singer. I think it was Lori Berkner and they were really excited about that. And then they said, we want to meet Mozart. And then I just was like, oh, Mozart's dead, like without even like really thinking about it. And they both burst into tears. And it was because I, they hadn't like really seen movies at that age. And so they just seen like little, like, like, you know, shows like Charlie and Lola and Little Bear. And so like, they just didn't really even know yet that people died. I was not keeping it from them, but it just hadn't come up you know? And so they both cried a lot and said, why did he die? And so, yeah, I thought it was, and it was partly the way I said it to them, which is like so callously that made them cry. But yeah, in the book, I thought that would be a good way to like begin this sort of like theme of like Dory asking questions about death, but not have an actual character die. And it, you know, to begin, but to, for it to be funny. And I think for a younger reader of Dory, like age four or five, I think they might be a little confused on the first read. Um, but hopefully, so I was a little bit hesitant to do the Mozart thing. But I also like, I know that so many kids that love the Dory books, they read them over and over again. So I was like, this might trip them up on the first read, but they're going to get it on the second. We've I've, we've definitely on this podcast had books where we've explored topics of grief and death. And Obviously, if you've lost a loved one, that's that's one experience. But this experience is is somebody from a long time ago who, you know, is no longer here. And it is just part of life. And so sometimes I, I just really appreciate that you were just, you know, matter of fact in here because it is part of life. People people do die. And obviously this isn't a book about about grief and, and losing a loved right. one. And so you are going to hear in conversations, kids are going to hear of, of somebody passing and dying and it's okay to talk about. So I like that you included it in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good to hear because I was definitely worried about that, about yeah. that little sub theme. <laughs> well, I liked it. Yeah. Um, so then another another moment for me as a parent who has volunteered in my children's classrooms, we all know that there are often um, scents, <laughs> smells oh, <yeah>. that stop <laughs> wafting through. And, um, you know, there's usually and I have to I have to laugh being Australian. Um, my any friends with uh, younger children, they laugh at the way I say this word, but the word fart so yeah. I think you guys say fart. So, yeah. <laughs> but th- there's usually a few fart smells within the hour that you're in there. And so there was the funny little scene about, you know, are you the classroom farter? And and Dory's <laughs> like, not today. <laughs> and I just love that the answer was not today. Because obviously everybody's in there farting at least I- once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love little moments like that. And then um, it was Mrs. Gobblegracker. Yeah. When So there's a, a babysitter is coming um, huh. to Dory's house and Mrs. Gobblegracker is 
like, what? I'm the only person that's allowed to sit on Dory. <laughs> and then yep. she's chasing Dory around the room. And I, how do you come up with these? Like, just, they're just quirky. They're just silly. They're just very, like, in the moment and keeps it going. But, like, how do you come up with those funny moments? I, I think Mrs. Gobblecracker is actually hard for me. Um, to Yeah, like, sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what she's going to say now. But, um, yeah, I think she's literal. She takes things literal. So, um. I thought that would be her natural response to when she heard about a babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she's maybe like the vil- villainous Amelia Bedelia in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. So funny. Um, yeah. And she had a similar confusion when she heard about the tooth fairy, you know, like um, she gets to keep children's body parts. You know, I kind of try to make it so that Mrs. Gobblegrecker is like, she has very fresh eyes. She's hearing something for the first time. Yeah. All right. And then something else. So you mentioned just before is that with Mary, who is one of the imaginary characters, that you had written this entire story and and you were like, oh, I need to find a spot for Mary. And when you said that, that really surprised me because I felt like there was a very pivotal moment in the way that you used Mary when the babysitter arrives um, that sort of demonstrates um, maybe a change of heart for Dory in the way that she converses or or introduces Mary. It just surprised me that like, you know, she was like more of an an addition at some point. And I'm going to I want to tie this also into so there's a craft glue situation. Oh, yeah. And you weave this craft glue all the way sort of gently throughout the story. And so I'm just curious. It's a bit of a callback. So we we hear about craft glue at the beginning. We hear about it in the middle. And then there's a really sweet moment that involves craft glue at the end. How is it with your writing process that you are able to kind of weave these little moments in that tie the whole story together? Because I'm sure listeners thinking like, oh, what are you talking about, Bianca? Craft glue? Like, what's that got to do with this story? (laughs) But yet it actually delivers one of the most poignant moments at the end of the end of the book. So are you consciously thinking when like you're looking for a tool to tell, help tell the story or do you just write a story and and go back and and add in something like Mary or whatever to fill in any gaps? Yeah, um, I think I started with, like I always start with the little things, like with an anecdote. So I just, I think it just started with um, the glue, with the crate, we call it crazy glue here. So that the crazy glue was on the couch and they had to buy a new couch. And then what I do when I'm writing a book is like, I. I do kind of keep track of the little elements to see if I can revisit them somewhere else. So it's like, if I wrote about crazy glue, I will kind of jot that down to be like, is that, could that possibly come up somewhere else? Cause sometimes it could solve another problem I have. Do you know what I mean? Like, like one of the other things that I didn't finish to the last minute is I was like, what does Dory say to her mom at the end? Like when she's like hugging her and go, and the mom's going back to work. Like I, I just really drew a blank with that. And then, crazy glue, you know, figured into there. So that was helpful. And then um, I was actually at the uh, grocery store and I heard this little girl, as I was writing the book, I heard this little girl hugging her mom saying, I'm going to stick to you like crazy glue. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that was exactly the line that I needed to end chapter one. Cause it kind of establishes, like, I always want the very end of chapter one to establish like for the reader to know, like, okay, this is what the book is about. This is like 
I mean, they might not know the first time, but you can tell the second time, like the, the problem has been identified. Like Dory is clinging to her mother. So yeah, I kind of just look for little places to stick it in. I feel like since you touched on it, I'm just going to go there with a little bit of a plot spoiler. So I'm going to tell listeners, just jump ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, so the crazy glue, it's like, I, I'm going to stick to you like crazy glue is kind of in in that first third. And then when Dory discovers that her mom is actually going to go back to work and, you know, she's not going to be able to stick with her like crazy glue. There's a funny little moment where she says, I'll give you all the money from my piggy bank. Is is this because I ruined the couch with the crazy glue? And then the dad's like, well, maybe (laughs) the mom was like, no. And then at the in the end, she uses she actually uses crazy glue to make something sweet for her mom. And so I just thought it was just so clever that it's funny and touching and I and I like the way you do it so thank you (laughs) what do you hope that readers take away from from reading this latest book I hope that I you know I have a lot of readers who have been excited for this book um so I hope that they don't feel disappointed because they had they surely had a long wait so I hope that they feel satisfied with where Dory's at and that I hope that they laugh just as much as they did with all the other books. And I hope that if they had similar struggles to to Dory, um, that this, in terms of like just separation anxiety, um, I hope that this book, I think just like seeing another child go through it and also being able to laugh at some of the other child's like antics that might be a little more extreme than their own. I think that that might be helpful. And um, I hope with all my books that they encourage kids to play. Dory uses play to kind of solve some real actual problems. And I think that play is such a great tool and that, uh, you know, it's, Dory uses it as sort of a source of independence and autonomy, but also as a way to forge connections um, with her friends. Sometimes readers tell me that, or parents tell me that their kids play, the characters play these Dory characters at recess, um, or teachers tell me, which is so cool. Um, I hope they use these characters to, you know, inspire their own. Do you have plans for more? Um, I'm writing the seventh book now, yep, um, which has definitely been a lot easier the the um so far um than the sixth. The sixth was so hard because I was just walking a fine line like with the the separation anxiety and the kind of like questions about death. I really had to be so careful that 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 was funny and not scary. Dory getting lost could be really scary, I think. And so I had to make sure that, like, you know, even though Dory was scared, the reader's not scared. And and the reader, you know, the reader could see where Dory's parent was all the, the whole time. Cause I do have really young readers. Um, so I think, you know, trying to write a book that could appeal to like the four-year-olds and the 10-year-olds um was tricky. And so, but the seventh book I'm I'm having fun doing and don't have those same problems so far. <laughs> now that you're working on the seventh, have there been some that came really easily and, and others that were really hard? Um, I think every book is kind of hard in different ways. Like book one and two, I kind of wrote a, a, like sort of together. And then book three was really hard because um, I could not figure out what to do with that sheep and and just, you know, the the whole 
turning Mrs. Gobblecracker into a kid was like a ridiculously hard challenge. I think what happens is that when a book is hard, the next one is maybe a little easier because then I feel like book four kind of wrote itself because I was able to use like book three was such a struggle that like I had like leftover material for book four and book four started with the the whole bunchy coat thing. And um, that whole first chapter about the coat happened to my son. I, as soon as he came home from school that day, and actually his teacher called me, he was in trouble. He came home crying. I listened to his story. Everybody was upset, but I knew right away. I was like, oh my God, this is the first, this is going to be the first chapter. I was like, this is too good. So four was easy. Then five was hard again. Five, I had this fear. I'm like, oh, my kids are in middle school. What if I'm like running out of like, their like little things from their life. Five, I kind of dug back to my life for the first time writing about Tubtown was a toy that I had that I was obsessed with. Um, And then seven has been like a little easier, but I haven't finished it. So I'll probably hit the hard part soon. <laughs> yeah. And what do you do when you hit a hard part? Like what's your, what's your go-to? I mean, a lot of people end up saying I go for a nice long walk, but what do you do? I do lots of different things. Like I will take out my sketchbook and try to like maybe sketch the characters and see if something emerges that way. Sometimes I just like, if I'm like still trying to really work out the plot, I draw a narrative arc and I just sort of like try to plug in and just figure it out. Like from a structural point of view, like what's missing. I also find that asking, like if I'm stuck somewhere, like why does Mrs. Gobblegracker, like, well, what we're talking about before, like what, what does Mrs. Gobblegracker do when she finds out Dory has a babysitter? Like if I don't know, I find the best way to get an answer to that is to actually write down the question. Like for some reason, it's like, if you ask, it will be answered. You know what I mean? But like just writing it down clarifies like what you need exactly. And also like when you have your list of questions together of everything that's sort of unresolved, you can see that one question can answer another question. And that's really cool too when that happens. So I also like, I, you know, drive my family crazy and I'll say like, what do you think? Like, you know, Dory should do. And like, she, like I, in book five, I wanted her to steal something. And I kept asking everybody like, what should Dory steal? And then I figured out that was, that was bugging me forever. And then I was so happy when I figured out that she should steal fake money. But yeah, so I do ask my family and, um, and I think about it all the time. Sometimes like if I'm really stuck on something, I'll like think about the question right before I go to sleep at night. And it's not like I think about it in my sleep, but I don't know. I get I get kind of desperate because it's like you're you're stuck. And and with book six, I was stuck in multiple places at once. Abby, if listeners were to take away just one thing from our conversation today, what would you want that to be? Oh, that's hard. One thing, I guess, like for parents, I would just you know, I think a lot of people talk about like the importance of reading, of early reading, and and I agree. I also just think that play is just as important and also uh, encourages so many new skills that in similar ways to reading, like, you know, it, it builds vocabulary and um, language and communication skills. And, you know, depending on what they're playing, like possibly even literacy skills, if, you know, they have like a little secret notebook or like they're making a menu or whatever it is. And I just think that um, play is so joyful and, um, and that kids don't often have, have, 
that much time to do it anymore. And that they learn so many important skills like taking turns and listening and leading and negotiating and understanding people's perspectives and learning how to read people. Um, I think that the Dory books are mostly about play. So that's I think that's what I'd like to end on. I think that was the perfect ending. So thank you so much because thank like you. I said up front, Dory Phantasmagory is hands down one of my favorite chapter book series for kids. Uh, so it was uh-huh. a huge honor for me to get to chat to you about it today. And I, I'm, I guarantee you a bunch of our listeners are huge Dory Phantasmagory fans too. And if they're not, they will be now. So <laughs> thanks uh-huh. for coming on the show. Thank you for your great questions, Bianca. It was really nice to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. Be sure to check out our show notes. You'll find links to order copies of the latest in the Dory Phantasmagory series. Dory Phantasmagory can't live without you. For more information about Abby Hanlon, visit abbyhanlon.com. And remember, if you love listening to the Growing Readers podcast, you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you enjoy listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen. The Growing Readers Podcast is a production of the Children's Book Review. To find more books just like the Dory Phantasmagory series, I hope you'll visit us at the thechildrensbookreview.com. Thank you.